Oh yay, oh yay, oh yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. And I'm SCOTUS Blog's media editor, Katie Barlow. Thanks for joining us. In March, we talked to three authors about writing Supreme Court fiction. And in early May, we were joined by Judge John Owens of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit to talk about a real-life Supreme Court scandal. Now there is a new Supreme Court thriller at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. It is While Justice Sleeps. It is the story of a Supreme Court law clerk, Avery Keene, who finds herself in the middle of a global conspiracy when the justice for whom she's clerking falls into a coma. We're delighted to have the author of While Justice Sleeps, who also happens to be voting rights activist and the former minority leader of the Georgia House of Representatives, Stacey Abrams, here with us today to talk about her book. Leader Abrams, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And congratulations, uh, you're, you're a New York Times bestseller. I am very, very grateful and excited. So thank you for that too. Uh, so I first learned uh, uh, that your book was coming out on one of my group chats. Someone said, Stacey Abrams has a Supreme Court thriller coming out. When on earth did she find time to write it with everything <laughs> that she's had going on? So that's our first question is, when did you have time to write this book or the previous eight books that you've written as Selena Montgomery? I started Selena Montgomery during my last year of law school in complete contravention of all the things I should have been doing. And they, you know, I was able to sell the first book to a publisher. They then bought two more books. So I wrote my next two during my tenure as a tax attorney at Sutherland. I then wrote the next two when I was deputy city attorney for Atlanta. And then the last three, yeah. So yeah, the last three while I was uh, a state legislator. So I learned to multitask early in my writing career. And it was in between books number seven and eight, I was having lunch with Teresa Wynn Roseborough, whose name appears in uh, the book twice, both as the Chief Justice, Teresa Roseborough, and as the surname of my uh, soon to be comatose uh, Supreme Court swing justice, Howard Wynn. We had lunch in 2008 and she, who, she was always supportive of my writing when we were at Sutherland together, she was one of my mentors and she would always, love to chat with me about possible storylines. And she said, have you ever thought about the fact that federal judges are the only people in the constitution who are given lifetime appointments, but that there is no mechanism in the constitution to remove them if they can't do their jobs. You can impeach them for high crimes and misdemeanors or they can die, but a physical inability to complete your job cannot disqualify you. You can be removed from the, by the 25th amendment if you're the president, and you can simply just not get reelected if you are in Congress. But if you are Supreme Court justice or any federal judge, as long as you live, you've got that job, even if you can't do it. And I could not let that go. So I went home in 2008, wrote the first scene, over the next year and a half wrote the book and nobody bought it. 
you've said before that you learned that part of the obligation of being a writer is of course getting the words on the page, but part of the business of being a writer is finding the right place and the right time to push your book out there. Obviously it took a while uh, from that initial conversation with Teresa Roseborough, which I was going to ask you about as my very next question, but that actually leads me to another question, which as someone who grew up in Georgia, a few of the names leapt off the page at me, David Ralston, DuBose Porter, Teresa Roseborough now. Um, How do you decide who gets billing as a character in your books and what characters they play? Billing is based on friends who either express an interest or who I think usually were nice to me at some point during my writing time. Uh, Robert Munford was also, he, he and I were in the state legislature together. And uh, you know, David Ralston was actually the first, he was one of the first chairmen I served under. And I was on the Judiciary Committee and before he became speaker, before I became leader. He was actually incredibly kind to me. He was kind to me when we, I was speaker, leader too, but uh, he was one of the people who helped me really learn how to be an effective legislator. And when I was writing this book, it meant a lot to me to include him because he was also very supportive of the fact that I was a writer and thought it was novel and interesting. I must say uh, DuBose Porter's name also lends itself to being a nice yes. character name in any book. <laughs> exactly. And, and DuBose is the reason I ran for leader. He thrust me into being much more outgoing as a legislator than I intended to and has been just such a dear friend ever since. Plus, he does have one of the best names in you know, all of fiction. Can you talk a little bit more then about sort of the process? You know, you said you started it quite a while ago, but now getting it out into print at a time when the Supreme Court is really at the center of attention. When I first shopped it, and you know, for those who you know sort of know writing lingo, I wrote it on spec. No one was planning to buy it, and clearly they didn't. I sent it to my agent who had represented my romance novels. And he gave me some good feedback, but there was also deep concern that the president was too corrupt and no one cared about the Supreme Court. Fast forward, this was 2011, fast forward to 2015, my agent had retired from the publishing world, so I tried it again, sent it out to other agents, no one wanted it. Uh, And again, there were critiques of the president and critiques of the Supreme Court as a subject that people cared about. When I remembered the book in 2019 and truly had forgotten that I'd written it, uh, I put it out there and I was talking about it with uh, some producers and the response was amazing. And it was because it was 2019 and the importance of the Supreme Court had taken on heightened, uh, heightened level of attention. And this was before, um, unfortunately, the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but the question of what happens and the, the very real understanding of what a swing vote could mean for the future of our nation had come up more than once. And so I think what was so salient about it this time, as opposed to the other times I tried, was that we had a, a president who was embroiled in an international scandal. We had a Supreme Court justice who could decide the fate of the world in some fashion, or at least the fate of the country. And I happen to be in the right place at the right time with a book that had just been waiting to be relevant. Well, the relevant missing piece of the Constitution was not a part of the Biden administration's executive order on court reform, but perhaps they've read the book and now consider that to be uh, an issue worth discussing. Um, 
I want to transition a little bit and talk about um, the end of your book without giving away any of the details. You feature a woman arguing before the Supreme Court. And statistically, women are not well represented arguing before the court. There were four times as many men as women arguing before the court just this term. And in fact, the same goes for women writing thrillers about the Supreme Court. What are your thoughts about the dearth of women in both places? That it is both a waste of incredible talent that gender still operates as a barrier to entry. I write my characters very intentionally. Avery was never gonna be a guy. Uh, and and much in, for me, as much as I think about gender, I think about race and that intersection is critically important. And it is an absolute truth that we do not do sufficient justice, no pun intended, to the role that women and people of color should play in the pursuit of justice. When women are denied those opportunities, and, and it's often a denial. It's not a lack of desire. It's a lack of access. We are not doing our best work in the legal profession. We are not doing our best work as Americans. And I think that part of my mission, I don't write to proselytize, but I do write to illuminate. And it was a very important thing for me, for the chief justice to be a black woman, for my character, uh, Avery, uh, to be a law clerk and for the argument at the end of the book to be carried by a woman, not as a you know, didactic moment, but really as a conversation starter. This, this should happen and it should happen more frequently than we know it to, to occur. Speaking of happening more frequently, so you've, you've signed, there are going to be more Avery Keene books. And, uh, and uh, so what's next for, for Avery Keene? At, at, there's also going to be a, perhaps a TV series? So we're in development on the TV series, working title and NBC Universal bought the rights. So we're in the process of thinking through that. I cannot tell you what Avery's going to do next. Uh, I, I've got till next year to figure that out. So. Okay. <laughs> But she'll, it'll be something fun. I would imagine. Um, so that's what's next for Avery Keene. What is next for Stacey Abrams? Stacey Abrams apparently has to write another book. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm working on this little democracy project, trying to make sure we still have one. Uh, voter suppression is, of course, what has animated much of my public, you know, work but it also undergirds the reason I write, whether it was my romantic suspense or the work I've written in nonfiction and in this book. I believe in the ideals of our nation. I believe in the role that the law can play in shaping who we are. I think policy matters. And my characters are crafted as vehicles for these conversations, but again, never to be overly pedantic about it, instead to be exciting and fun and engaging and to pull you in. And if you leave there knowing a little bit more than you expected, that is a great thing. Using the Supreme Court, centering the Supreme Court for me was fun because I got to talk about something that has always fascinated me. I've never wanted to be a Supreme Court justice, never wanted to be a clerk. I'm barely a lawyer, but I care about these topics and I follow, not, not to pander, but I follow the SCOTUS blog, 
I've read, you know, I'd read multiple books on the Supreme Court before I wrote the book. I love fiction as a vehicle through which you can bring people into worlds they don't think they're a part of and give them an opportunity to really understand it. And I try to do the same in my politics. And so what's next for me is just keeping the lens wide enough that people see what's possible and they feel that they can be a part of it. The book uh, featuring the Supreme Court um, had plenty of drama, although real life at the Supreme Court had plenty of drama in the past year. I think perhaps it was arguably the busiest year uh, and the most newsworthy year covering the Supreme Court. So it will be interesting to see if you continue to feature the court. But when we spoke with um, some of the other authors who have written thrillers about the court, we talked a little bit about their process and having you know someone they could call that actually worked in the court to figure out which way a door opened in the court to you know, be as authentic as possible. You obviously as a lawyer um, and have, have experience in that world, but what, tell us a little bit about your process and we know why you selected the court and why it was important, but your process and kind of mining all of those details and bringing the story to life at a place that is uh, traditionally lacking general transparency. When Teresa raised the question for me of the court, it led me to read almost anything I could put my hands on about the Supreme Court, including the minutia of how the offices are laid out and how people are assigned. My younger sister, Judge Leslie Abrams Gardner, was not a Supreme Court clerk, but she was a district court clerk and is much closer to a lot of other lawyers who have been at the Supreme Court level. And so my process was I read as much as I could and then I called her to make sure I wasn't lying. (laughs) (laughs) And I I would prod her with questions like, I need to know this and does this happen? And would this be possible? And she would call someone who was a Supreme Court clerk and let me know if I was being accurate or not. <laughs> That's a very helpful and, and handy yes. resource to have when writing a book on the court. Yes. Well, when you read the acknowledgments, actually, it's, it's a lot of fun to read your acknowledgments because it looks like your book really was a family affair. You know, you relied on your sister, who's a judge for the legal aspects, but then, you know, you turn to other siblings for the science Oh yeah. So I'm the second of six kids. And my mother, when I was growing up, was a research librarian. She would tell us when you had a question, when she said, go look it up, it was not a rhetorical device. And you couldn't say you couldn't find it because there was a whole library and it was her expertise to help you find it. I knew how to use microfiche when I think I was like six. But for my family, it was one of the best things for me was that for all of the pieces of the book, I had a sibling I could call someone who could give me really good detailed information, so much better than Google. I could do very precise questions. They could give me exactly the answer I needed. Uh, you know, my brothers who love thrillers could help me really refine the story. And ultimately I got all of that research for completely free. It was the cheapest research team ever. And I highly recommend it. It's not unlike your lead character, Avery Keen, who happened to find herself surrounded by the the exact type of people that she needed to research what she needed to get where she was going. Exactly. (laughs) And and luckily for me, my family has always been just incredibly supportive. If you go through my romance novels, I think I have to credit a sibling per book for how they were helpful as I tried to make up knowledge and close gaps. For me, it's important to sound, to an expert who's reading a a book that I've written, I need the expert to know I respect their field if they can tell I'm not actually of the field. And to a lay person, I need to sound like I know everything I'm talking about. 
I would imagine that's certainly true for the the small circle of folks who follow the Supreme Court closely. Yes. Oh dear God, yes. <laughs> well, clearly a lot of people are enjoying the book because it is again a New York Times bestseller. So we will we will be waiting anxiously for the uh, the, the sequel. No pressure, um, and we'd love to have you come back and talk to you about that one. I would love to. I I will say this: the Supreme Court is one of and, and you all know this, it is rife with intrigue and interest and a lack of transparency that should be unsettling to anyone who pays attention to the world. And yet, because of its trusted stature, regardless of how you feel about the individual members, we have vested it with such power that even the commission that's been created to look at it is going to have to unravel so many layers of history and tradition and just American you know, investiture of you know, trust. When you have to pull that apart, when you are writing and trying to pick through those pieces, it is both a hazard, but it is off, it's an awful lot of fun. Stacey Abrams, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Angie Goh, Cal Goldie, and James Ramoser.